episode 226. Is the surprise billing gold rush screeching to a halt? Today, I speak with Devin Herrick, a health economist and policy analyst. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Surprise billing. It sounds like so much fun. Who doesn't love a surprise? Except receiving a surprise bill is zero fun. In case you've been out of the loop on this, surprise billing is when the patient, unbeknownst to them, racks up out-of-network charges, usually at a hospital. The patient may have done absolutely everything right, selected an in-network hospital, got all their tests pre-approved, and then, wham, a month or a year later, the patient gets a bill that could be a few hundred dollars or a few hundred thousand dollars, usually from someone they have never heard of. And that's an important point. The vast majority of physicians out there, especially the ones with relationships with patients, those physicians don't surprise bill. Unfortunately, surprise billing isn't a one-off rando event. 54% of Americans have received a surprise bill, and that 54% of Americans, not happy about it. Surprise billing has been identified as a solid barrier to access and to patients who need care getting it. Patients fear the looming threat of having their bank account emptied out no matter how diligent and smart and well-insured they are. Why does surprise billing, or balance billing as it's usually called by those engaging in it, why does surprise billing continue when it is so clearly a problem for patients? I went on a quest to find out, and it turned out to be a super short quest. If you read a recent Brookings Institute report, you'd have discovered that surprise billing is a lucrative gambit for some, certainly not all, hospitals. It's especially lucrative in, but not limited to, emergency rooms. So much money can be raked in from incapacitated or at a minimum injured patients, in fact, that certain ER staffing companies have basically turned surprise billing into a business model. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you'd know that I wrote an article about this on Medium recently. Today, I speak with Devin Herrick, PhD, who is an expert in surprise billing. Devin is a healthcare economist and public policy analyst who has authored many articles on surprise billing. You will find links to some of them in the show notes. Devin is also an advisor to the Heartland Institute, which is a free market think tank. I find it incredibly thought-provoking that a free market think tank, for reasons we discuss in this podcast, finds unfettered market-driven surprise billing as egregious as the most progressive socialists do. Handshaking across aisles everywhere. If you are a hospital or insurance carrier executive, What are you thinking right now? What are you doing in light of all of this public attention and legislation? I really hope your response includes actions to protect your patients and not just industry-centric lobbying efforts. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Devin Herrick, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Well, thanks for having me. How common is this surprise billing slash balance billing? Well, it's becoming increasingly common across the U.S., and which makes patients angry. And, of course, they call their elected representative, which is why we're seeing legislation you know, proposed across many states. You're also hearing about proposed federal regulations. 
Yeah, I've seen statistics that say that 54% of Americans have received a surprise bill. They say one in seven hospital admissions results in a surprise bill. And the numbers aren't little amounts. It's not like a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, there was an article a few years back about a guy that received surgery in New York State. His assistant surgeon, who came in kind of at the last minute, charged 117000 um, of course, Medicare would have paid 850 for that service. But there was a student in Texas a couple of years ago who had a, a urine test sent out to an out-of-network lab, and, and she got a bill for, I think it was between seventeen dollars and $18,000. I mean, these are, are very large bills. So they're you know, life-changing bills for a lot of people. It, it turns out that patients are a lucrative source of, of revenue. If you inspect the practice of balance billing in the context of business law, what would your conclusion be? In my undergraduate classes on business law, that to have an enforceable contract, you had to have a meeting of the minds. Uh, another term for that is mutual assent. You have to agree that healthcare strikes me as the only area of our economy where you're not really required to even know in advance. Let's say you go into the hospital, you're admitted. You sign a form, and that form, a blanket form, is, is used to force you to make you legally liable for anyone who basically touches you inside that hospital, whether they are an employee or a self-employed ancillary physician or, or provider of some sort. I, I would not really call that a meeting of the minds, especially when maybe a myopsy is sent to a pathologist. Now, instead of calling you and saying, okay, um, by the way, our fees will be X, Y, or Z, you just get a bill maybe a month later and, you know, discovering that your insurance company only pays a fraction of that. This is one of the reasons why patients fear hospitals, because you cross over the threshold of a hospital and you basically sign an open check for whatever anybody chooses to do to you, considering that the average American has $400 in their checking account is a pretty frightening proposition. So it is no wonder that patients are abandoning therapy in fear of bankrupting themselves when they walk through a hospital door and have to sign that piece of paper. Oh, absolutely. You said something which is intriguing, this idea of transparency. Well, a lot of analysts think that the ultimate, you know, the need to solve the problem of, of balanced billing or surprise bills is greater transparency. I'm one of those, those people. I mean, I, I would personally make it harder to collect charges where there was no transparency. You know, you know, like I said, it, if there was no meeting in the minds, it is not a enforceable contract. And what would that do? Well, it would give your doctor and your patient both an incentive to talk to each other. As you know, you, you can't Google prices on your iPhone in the back of an of ambulance on the way to the ER. So the one, one of the places where transparency wouldn't really help would be under emergency medical conditions. There would need to be some other type of solution. So let's take the ER first, and then I'd like to kind of circle back to instances or scenarios when there's plenty of time. So what are the ideas that are afoot right now to help ameliorate the incidences of surprise billing in an ER? One solution I've heard, you know, in the emergency room is to make the hospital responsible for communicating and really even negotiating the rates with the physician. Other states simply 
just ban balance billing outright. I should back up and say about half of states have some type of protection um, from surprise medical bills. Only a handful of states, I want to say about nine, maybe 10 now, have comprehensive protections using multiple methods. Most of those states that have some protections have them for the ER. A smaller number have them for uh, in-network hospitals, for example. Most hold the patient harmless, meaning you really can't bill the patient, and they shift the debate or the disagreement to the providers and the, to the health plans. Some states use a method where they have like a standard. It could be a function of Medicare, or it could be a function of fair health, say 80%, which is quite a bit above Medicare. And a handful of states use a type of mediation process. It sounds like there's several choices. There's some states that just ban it. So basically, patient shows up who is out of network. The hospital can charge a max of something derived from in-network care or Medicare. Yeah, some function of either in-network prices in the area or some function of Medicare. There's usually some type of standard, and sometimes standards are quite high, and sometimes they're, they're less generous. Or it sounds like there are other options on the table where it becomes incumbent upon the hospital to, you know, if there's a physician that's running around in that hospital, the hospital is having chats with anybody who is sending out-of-network bills. That seems to be the other stratification of solutions. But I mean, obviously, we've reached a tipping point. Like, there are too many Americans who are getting surprise bills, who are writing and calling and, generally speaking, making noise. And that racket has reached the ears of legislators. Is that your contention as well? It is my contention. I thought it was going to occur about three years ago when I was doing some research at the National Center for Policy Analysis. And I literally told them, I said, hey, we need to gear up to work on this issue because I think it's coming to a head. Well, it's gotten a lot worse since then. And I think it really is coming to a head this year. And if I'm a hospital... You know, in the past, maybe there hasn't been any business imperative really to to figure this out. And in some cases, and I know you know this far better than I do, Devin, that actually the ER has become a revenue generator for some hospitals. They are making money off of -of out-of-network surprise billing and maybe rely on it. So you've got an economic situation where there's perhaps a negative incentive to do anything about curtailing this practice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think the the incentive that doctors and hospitals and insurance companies have to deal with this problem and step up at the plate and consider it a real issue is that if they don't, if they don't become part of the solution, they'll get steamrolled over uh, and they'll find they don't like the, the solution that, in fact, happens against their will. And I, I talked to you before about healthcare is similar to a gold rush. It seems like every stakeholder is you know, out to do their best to, to maximize their revenue because there really is no price competition. Economists consider real competition is always on the basis of price. Well, we don't have that in healthcare because consumers don't control most of the money. But I, I really think that we're coming to the point that the providers and the health plans and the hospitals and clinics and all the, all the stakeholders realize that they have to do something. If they don't, it's going to ha- you know, legislation is going to happen 
anyway, so they might as well roll up their sleeves and work with, you know, reach across the aisle and work with whether it's Republicans and Democrats or whether it's you know, doctors and hospitals and health plans. So your advice to hospitals at this juncture is? Oftentimes what I'm seeing is bills are being proposed that are very, very one-sided. For example, I forget which state it was, but there was, in, in various states, you have, of course, physicians serving in the legislature. You have physicians serving in Congress. And, of course, they have a very different perspective than, say, a former health plan executive or a hospital executive. I mean, you know, viewpoints and opinions that are held professionally before you go to Congress are oftentimes carried with you into Congress and at least those relationships. So I think what we need to see and what I would do if hospital executives is work with the legislature. Tell your representatives what your concerns are and realize if it's too one-sided, if the proposals are too one-sided, if, if certain stakeholders refuse to participate and just block and block and block it, it sooner or later, something will pass and it will probably have excluded those stakeholders that are not willing to work with the legislature. We are already on an inexorable path to some sort of legislation happening. So if anybody's strongly opposing anything now, then the next bill that gets passed, and one will get passed, their input is not going to be included. And likely that bill is not going to be anything that, you know, it's going to be worse. Well, in fact, that is what happens. Do any of the legislative proposals which are going on anywhere in the country do anything to prevent, for example, direct primary care physicians or cash-based practices from collecting dollars directly from a patient? You know, is there any spillover into other financial models? I have not seen that be the case. I see nothing in the Texas bill or any other bills that would prevent me from paying my physician in advance, for example. What do other doctors think about this? And I'm teeing this up because based on what you've said, it seems to me that there's a relatively small percentage of physicians who are relying on a surprise billing, either business model full on or at least to supplement their income. It's probably a narrow cohort if you look at all of physicians across the country. But that little Gang, it must give agita to, to the physicians who actually are taking the time to ensure that their patients un- are understanding of the costs. Well, I think it, it is somewhat surprising that if you look at the types of specialties that are most prone to have or to be out of network and to balance bill, it, it really is a very small segment. I think physicians, as a group, tend to be very protective because of that they don't want any any encroachment on their prerogative. Especially when I talk to physicians privately, they, they tend to agree that, no, this shouldn't happen, uh, or at least it should, if it does happen. I mean, most doctors would agree you should not be forced into a network, and I agree with that, too. But they would also agree that you should not make a business model out of surprising patients. If you want to be out of network, you need to be very, very transparent about your prices because your patients are, in fact, your customers. I can think in any other industry, say someone just marched up into my front door and handed me a bill because they, I don't know, like pruned my trees. <laughs> and I, I didn't agree to it. Like that is so unenforceable. Just this whole idea of surprise building, I would have to say, just makes me super uncomfortable from a, like just the, the, the ethics of it. Does anybody else talk about it in that context? 
Well, I started talking about that three years ago and just basically describing like we've talked about where it doesn't seem to be a meeting of the minds. And just recently, I read an article, I, I believe it was in the New York Times, and it also appeared in a, a medical journal with Arnold Milstein. And I'm trying to think of the, the name of a law professor from Duke talking about it. And so it gave me an added measure of of confidence that this, in fact, is a, a an important protection for consumers that can be applied. It strikes me as interesting how it was enabled in the first place. How did it come to pass that this is a default business practice in healthcare that is somehow or another acceptable when it's so clearly problematic? I don't think anybody could look at that and go, yeah, that sounds fair to me. Well, it's, it's sort of sort of very weird because our whole, our whole healthcare system is rather weird. <laughs> in every other area of our economy, I mean, the, the big box is where the best prices are. In healthcare, the big box, the hospital, tends to have the highest prices. In other areas of our economy, which have price competition, you tend to have bundled prices. You know, the prices are never disaggregated into, you know, a million small, you know, tasks. The way it works, the, the strategy, and this is what hospitals do, they disaggregate services, you know, from bundles, because obviously heart surgery is a bundle of services, they just aggregate that into, you know, page after page of individual billing codes. And so I think the natural result of doing that, which is a way to maximize revenue, is that more and more of the services within the hospital that are not provided by the hospital are being billed individually as well. So if you're a hospital executive right now, just given the path that we seem to be on as a country, the legislation that is ongoing, consumer sentiment, what would you be doing right now? Well, I, I think it's important because, you know, hospitals are where a lot of the balance billing occurs. It's not necessarily the hospital doing the balance billing. Now, it can be under some conditions. Um, if I'm having a heart attack and the ambulance takes me to a hospital that's not in my network, <laughs> it, it could be the hospital. But generally, it's it's in-network hospitals, but out-of-network ancillary providers who work under the roof of the hospital. I think the concern I would have at the hospital is that there are proposals to make the hospital responsible, or at least in charge of, of those ancillary physicians and other providers. And so it, it's in the hospital's best interest, not just for that reason, but also for public relations. If I go to Hospital A and I, let's call it Memorial Hospital, and I have some surgery done, or maybe I have a baby delivered, uh, there are surveys out there that, that have found a significant proportion of, of you know, new parents get surprise medical bills. And there's also research that has found a significant portion of those who get surprise medical bills go somewhere else next time. If I'm a hospital executive, it's a little bit like I might have two feet, you know, like one foot on the dock and one foot in the canoe. In other words, if I do have an ER department and there was a recent Brookings Institute article that came out, which articulated some specifics around the fact that hospitals make money when their emergency department surprise bill. So, you know, maybe I'm seeing that revenue coming in on one side, but then on the other side, I'm seeing all of the factors that we're talking about amping up. Do you have any recommendations on how to balance those factors, or does it just take a strong leader who, who says, look, this is the right thing to do? Well, I think it's a, a combination 
as we discussed, I think there's a definite incentive to try to be part, to be a, an active stakeholder in the debate at the legislative level in states, because it, hospitals are an important stakeholder in the community. But also, I think hospitals can wield more power than they realize, simply because, I mean, what goes on under their their roof is is under their roof. You know, they might not, for example, have price controls and, and tell providers you you cannot charge more than X, Y, or Z. But at the same time, they they can strong arm and say, you know, you really need to have more transparent pricing. And if you don't, I mean, because for example, a lot of times this happens with physicians who are on call. And I've talked to doctors and I've spoken to Rotary Club meetings and which were attended by doctors and who had similar stories of surprise bills that they've encountered. I had one one gentleman told me that, you know, I called the hospital. I tried to ask, well, now, is the anesthesiologist in my network? And they told me they couldn't tell me because so they didn't know who was going to be on call that day. The gentleman asked the price and they said, well, we can't tell you. We don't, we don't know. I think the hospital has a little bit of leverage to say, you know, if you are one of those that we're getting the most complaints about, we'll probably give more on on call time to those that create less problems. So I guess there is a financial incentive and they do have some leverage. Do insurance carriers have skin in this game? If I'm working for an insurance carrier, what do I think about this? Oh, absolutely. The insurance carriers, their biggest skin in the game, if whatever standard is used, for example, if I've heard that if the standard is, well, you know, out-of-network physicians get paid the 80th percentile of the database maintained by Fair Health, for example, that's a rather high fee. And if, if the patient is being held harmless, that means the, the health, health plan is on the hook for a much, much higher provider fee. And if, of course, if I'm a physician who's in network and I see my out-of-network colleagues making twice as much money, I'm probably going to drop that network too next year or the year after. So they absolutely have a, a stake in trying to iron out a mutually agreeable plan. So most physicians are in network and those that are out of network are, are not you know, making out like bandits. That's an interesting thought because one of the stats that there was charts and graphs all over the interwebs recently about is that, you know, doctor fees have gone up something like 18 percent in the past. I don't know. It was like six years maybe was the interval, whereas hospital fees have skyrocketed. There's just this nice gradual incline for doctors fees increasing. And then there was this rock climber steep cliff <laughs> for how hospital prices have gone up. So what you're saying is that the insurance carriers perhaps are the ones that are moderating how much doctors are getting paid, but they're not doing a particularly good job <laughs> um, managing how much hospitals are getting paid. And that is a dynamic which could wind up being problematic for the insurance carrier and patients if everybody starts thinking that surprise billing is a way to make money or have a living wage. I've read recently, and I, I wish I could recall the exact statistic, but the vast majority of, of the increase in healthcare costs for the last few years have been in, in the hospital. Whenever I talk to physician groups about the consumer price index you know, for physician services, they all say, wait a minute, that can't be right. My prices haven't gone up in 10 years. Well, uh, you know, that doesn't mean their prices went up, but someone's prices are going up. What's really interesting to me is that I've seen 
the data for cosmetic surgery or for types of procedures like that. One area of medicine where we have a lot of transparency, where physicians and clinics are competing on the basis of price, quality, and other amenities is in cosmetic medical services. And it's been very, very stable. And there's a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot, there, there is almost perfect transparency. What I was trying to bring forth is whether the it's like squeezing a balloon and the safety valve is doctor's surprise billing. It, it could be the case, absolutely. And I, I think it, it depends on, it's partly based on opportunity. If you have opportunity to make more using a business model that you've seen your colleagues use, uh, you may try that. Uh, whereas if you don't have that opportunity, you know, obviously you can't. Hospitals have a stake in how this works out simply because it's really bad public relations to have, you know, your, your patients not come back the next time they have a child simply because, well, they had a bad experience. And it was not even the hospital's fault necessarily. And so coming back to insurance carriers, how is the public relations, you know, do insurance carriers bear a similar public relations issue? Or what's the incentive for an insurance carrier to maybe throw a little bit more attention this way? Oh, I think they have a a lot of incentive. Insurance carriers, oftentimes what happens is a a patient goes to a doctor, the doctor sends out a lab specimen to the lab, the patient gets a bill for, you know, let's just talk about an arbitrary amount, let's say $1,000, you know, balance bill. So they call their insurance company and they say, I just got a bill for $1,000. Are you guys going to pay this? And the, the, of course, the insurance company or the third-party administrator says, uh, no, if you went to an out-of-network provider, we paid the usual and customary of $85, let's say. So you are you know, responsible for the, residual, you know, the remaining balance of $915. Well, it, it creates a lot of friction. People routinely blame it on their insurance company. You know, one of the reasons why insurance companies want to put a stop to it, but of course the other reason is, is if it goes into arbitration or mediation, they may have to kick in $500 of that $1,000 or $915 surprise medical bill. And the advice that you would have for an insurance carrier who is so inclined would be, once again, participate in legislative opportunities? Or is there other... Well, I think that's a good start. Of course, have adequate network, uh, provider networks. Uh, also, communicate clearly um, who your providers are. Make it easy. And then, of course, participate in the legislative process. You know, it's it's a, a huge problem, and, and there's a lot of blame to go around. And the more insurance companies are involved in the process, the more they're going to get their perspectives heard. It's interesting to me that we are turning to the government to regulate this, that the market itself is seemingly unable to keep itself in check. The preferred way I would like to handle it would be to mandate more transparency. It it kind of concerns me that a lot of the state proposals, in fact, are are heavy-handed from the standpoint they create bureaucracies to make the decision when the doctors and hospitals and the health plans and insurance companies can't seem to agree. I think the goal, and this is, I guess, advice for legislators, why not look for solutions that prevent the problem, not look for solutions that deal with the problem? That goes back to require greater transparency and make it harder to collect on surprise medical bills 
if there was no advance notice when there could have been. And the advance notice wasn't early enough to make an informed choice. The anesthesiologist would call the, the patient saying, okay, I'm scheduled to be your anesthesiologist on, on Tuesday. Um, I want you to know what my fees are. I mean, you need to sign a, a form and so forth. Well, these are very uncomfortable conversations, but it's these kind of uncomfortable conversations that lead to solutions, which would be fees that are closer to the in-network fees and that are more competitive and patients talking to their doctors and vice versa. Well, I mean, I guess it is easier for someone to simply send a bill of indeterminate costs than to actually have a hard conversation about how much it costs. It would be easier. I don't want to liken a, a medical professional to a salesperson, but I'm sure if you talk to any salespeople, if you don't have to actually, the customer is forced to purchase your product, that's a lot easier than actually getting them to consent to buy. I mean, years ago, I had a, a physician who I knew, he was a medical director at a, at a large telemedicine company. And he came by my office door just to talk, and he told me, he said, you know, back in the old days before we had insurance, what kept medical prices lower was you had to look the patient in the eye, you know, when you gave him the bill. And, you know, it was a metaphor. I'm sure it was the billing staff had to do it. But his point was clear. It was if you had a close relationship with your patient, that was an incentive not to, you know, surprise bill them. You want to be as clear as possible. People hate surprises. They may not love your prices, but they really hate bad surprises. Yeah, and that probably is just another reason why the physicians, the providers that a patient has a relationship with aren't the ones that are sending these surprise bills. It's the transactional types, the ones that never have to look the patient in the face. They don't even know the patient. It's real easy to send to a nameless entity a bill that's going to bankrupt them. I don't think that a physician that has a relationship with a patient, that that patient, they know what that patient's kids' names are and who their parents are. Like That's not the kind of professional that's going to do something like that. I think that's an important aspect, but like you said, like I said, it's the people you don't have a chance to meet that are more apt to give you a surprise bill. And, and I've seen data on this in terms of average prices. There was a recent JAMA article that looked at, you know, like the median price, you know, for various physician specialties. And it showed that the median prices varied from 100% of Medicare, you know, the same as Medicare, to 101 times Medicare. The average, or the mean, I think the median was 2.5 times Medicare. So what's that tell you? Well, if, if the median is 2.5 times Medicare's low rate, but the outlier was 101 times Medicare's low rate, we know that most physicians have reasonable prices, and there's a few that have prices that are beyond exorbitant, just a small few. But those are the ones that can hit you with a surprise medical bill, and they're also the ones that would provide a, a perverse incentive to their colleagues if it continues to get worse and worse. There's always a couple that ruin it for everybody else, right? Well, my fear is there's a couple that get away with it. And so that just sends a message to those that aren't trying it that maybe this is an acceptable business practice. And over time, it becomes one just because, you know, more and more adopted and it becomes a standard. And then basically what we wind up with is legislation that clamps down on it. As you said, it's a gold rush until it isn't. Yeah, exactly. Devin, talk a little bit about your consulting practice. What exactly do you tend to specialize in? Well, I'm a health economist. Now I work with small state-based think tanks or 
do projects for uh, think tanks that do national policies. I'm, I'm semi-retired. I, I still like to keep busy and dabble in public policy, uh, especially some of the areas I've worked on in the past. And if someone is interested in speaking further, where would they go to get a hold of you, Devin? Uh, probably the easiest place would be my Twitter handle, just Devin Herrick. I love to tweet. It also links back to a organization that I have a, an affiliation with. I'm a policy advisor to the Harlan Institute. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.